Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Any more liberation? Any more liberation? Any more liberation? Whoa. Welcome to Freedom Species, the animal advocacy show on 3CR. You just heard Out of the Pan with Sally Goldner, and you can tune in to Sally's show every Sunday at 12pm. It's Claire here, and I wanted to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from Jajarung country in central Victoria. I want to pay respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to the First Nations people on whose lands you're listening in from today. Um, so today I'm joined by Davida, who's a PhD student at Deakin with an interest in cultural relationships with animals on colonised land and also part of the Freedom of Species team. Davida, did you want to acknowledge where you're speaking to us from today? Yeah, thank you, Claire. Thank you for that introduction. I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri country and I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and I want to thank them for their continuing care for country amidst ongoing colonisation. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about your PhD thesis, which is very exciting for me um, because I had the great honour of um, reading the whole thing from cover to cover. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's it's a thing I've done with a couple of my friends' PhD theses and there's nothing, yeah, nothing I love more than the opportunity to really deeply engage with people's work. So I've read um, recently in the last sort of six months a thesis on uh, Liberian settler colonialism, which was fascinating. I really didn't know anything about Liberian history or contemporary sort of mm. politics. And so that was really great. And then also read another friend's um, thesis on the depathologization of trans healthcare which was, yeah, another fascinating. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great topics. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. They're fantastic. Um, do you want to tell <laughs> us a bit about your thesis and how you came to be interested in this particular topic? Yes. Um, my thesis is on the flying foxes in Yarraband Park here in Melbourne. And I study the relationships of care that different people have with these flying foxes. So just a little bit of background about the flying foxes. We have done a few shows on them already. In the archives of Freedom of Species, you're able to find a few shows that talk about pets and that talk about flying foxes. And um, they're big pets, the flying foxes. They're the grey-headed flying foxes. They're one of the four main... They're one of the four species of flying foxes on mainland Australia. And um, people might have a few contested ideas about bats. They're not aggressive. They're really friendly. They're just minding their own business, living their own life. And they're it's also known as fruit bats. They feed on nectar and pollen mainly. That's their primary diet. But 
due to colonization and habitat destruction, a lot of those food sources have been destroyed. And uh, you'll find them in your backyard in fruit trees a lot, which is where a lot of people know them from here in Melbourne. And they've been listed as threatened with extinction for about 20 years. And that was just before the big dispersal campaign from the Royal Botanic Gardens, where they were roosting before. And since then, they have been roosting in Yarbent Park. So that's a bit of a brief overview, just a quick flying foxes in a nutshell. But the thing that interests me is I started this PhD on animals in cities. Flying foxes are uh, have proven very, yeah, are very good at living in cities. You'll find them in a lot of big cities in, in um, southeastern Australia. But the thing that interested me in the literature on flying foxes is that I came across this phrase that bad advocates and experts said, we need to learn to live with them. And this comes after centuries of harassment, vilification, dispersal campaigns, such as the one from the Botanic Gardens. Um, and after all that, you hear, you hear this call a bit more frequently now that says, we need to learn to live with them. Hearing that phrase, I wonder how. How do people envision that? And what sort of examples of human-animal relationships in this society do we have that we can rely on for inspiration? The vegan animal advocate in me says there aren't really many examples that sort of show that we live with them. For example, companion animals, we live with them. We know them intimately. We care for them. There's dedicated structures of care for them. But they're under a lot of human control. Farmed animals, same thing. Animals in zoos, same thing. And that's the sort of the key thing. All of our relationships with other animals are based on a lot of human projects of control. So to, yeah, to live with them in a way that relinquishes that control, that is so characteristic for a Western society that is anthropocentric, and in this case in Australia, a settler colonial society, that requires a deep reorientation across the whole of the whole of society, and that that interested me. That that tension, that problem. Was there anything in particular that drew you to foxes, uh, flying foxes? Because you said you were interested in animals in cities, and was there anything particularly mm -hmm. about the bats that kind of did you have, like? A previous relationship with either, um, you know, bat carers or, or the bats themselves when you were sort of narrowing down your topic from, from the very broad topic of animals in cities. <laughs> um, how did you specifically land on the bats? Yeah, I they were new to me. I was unfamiliar with them. I'm coming from the Netherlands. We have the micro bats. We have the smaller bats that are across the world, but we we don't have the flying foxes. So yeah, they're they're new for me. At the start of the COVID pandemic, it was a good idea to focus on a topic in Melbourne, close to home, so I didn't experience a lot of travel restrictions. And mm -hmm. I explored a few topics, but then the flying foxes, it sort of yeah, it really it really sparked a lot of thinking. It sparked a lot of interest. There was a lot of there's a lot of interest in them in the scientific mm -hmm. literature from an ecological perspective or a biological perspective. 
but not so much from a social scientist perspective. Just a few studies, not so much else. So I thought I can I can contribute here. And what I've noticed in, for example, ecological literature or biology biological literature that sort of dealt with flying foxes, there's often there's often a bit of a mention to settler colonialism. They'll in the art in the research article they they'll say something like, since British colonization of these lands, the bats have been have been doing it tough, you know, that's basically the gist of it. And that's about the extent of the engagement with the settler colonialism. So for this, so in my thesis, I wanted to have that much more front and center. This is what settler colonialism does. This is how a settler colonial society is structured and it is ongoing. It also affects our relationships with other animals. Yeah, having read your work, it was, I think it was, yeah, a fantastic choice um, just in terms of how generative, how many different aspects of um, both the the bat's life worlds and then the kind of human-bat interaction that exists. It's, um, yeah, really kind of was very extremely thought-provoking in terms of, you know, you, you wrote a lot about city infrastructure and, and how that impacts upon bats and how the assumption is always, um, you know, that animals will adjust to the ways in which, um, you know, Western capitalist cities are constructed. And But I think, you know, in thinking through those relationships of care with uh, non-human animals, it was really generative um, that you pushed at the really at the boundaries of kind of these really accepted ways of thinking about yeah, living together, like what does that mean? Does that just mean that, you know, animals adjust to dealing with the, you know, the extremely often life-threatening sort of ways in which humans live or or is there another relationship that we could um, forge based upon a, a different ethic of care? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so generous that you say that. It's And all of your comments have been so insightful and helpful and that's the last thing you said about an ethic of care as guiding for our relationships with other animals and what that might look like um that's yeah that's the main focus of my thesis yes so well i mean that leads really nicely to my next question (laughs) which was what were the research questions that you brought to your study what were you looking to investigate oh very dryly research questions. What are the relationships of care between people and flying foxes? Um, what influences those relationships? Those are basically the two main <laughs> the main questions. But I think that's the most. That's maybe a bit of a boring answer to your question. <laughs> um, the thing that interested me is how people currently care for flying foxes, because you can care in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of ways to care. Not all of them equally desirable. Um, care, even though it sounds really nice, care can be very controlling. So that was another thing to unpack in care theory and our everyday relationships with care is how much control are we exerting in this situation as as humans. But the thing that I studied, the thing that I focused on were. There's this network of advocates that has a must around the bats. There's scientists, there's bat carers, there are wildlife rescuers who treat and release injured or orphaned flying foxes. 
So there's all these people who already care for them. And uh, I was so interested in um, what are what are their relationships with the flying foxes and with a specific attention to what are the messages they are getting from flying foxes and what how are they communicating with the flying foxes? This idea of interspecies communication. Because the idea to provide good care, you need to be attentive, you need to be responsive to the one you're caring for. And that requires that we communicate with flying foxes. So I was really interested in, in how do people, what messages, what cues are they taking from the flying foxes? What understanding do they have with the flying foxes? And what is the flying foxes part in this? I took that together and I sort of noticed a few patterns in how people care currently for flying foxes. A lot of the care work is advocating for flying foxes. It's trying to familiarize people with flying foxes, telling people that they're around, that they're important, um, that they're not out to hurt you. So there's this whole attempt and that is so telling. I think it's so telling in a Western anthropocentric society People just have no idea about flying foxes and that we need to learn so much about them. So that's very telling. Wildlife rescuers, of course, they treat and release individual flying foxes when they're, um, for example, hit by cars, when they're caught in netting, in fruit tree netting, when they've gotten stuck on barbed wire fences. So there's this lot of treating and releasing individual flying foxes. And I started, I noticed a pattern in that a lot of the care that people do is trying to garner support for the bats by engaging individual humans. And it's a lot of care for individual bats who are have found themselves in emergencies in, in the urban infrastructure. And it I find I thought it was telling that there was very little care for flying foxes as they are in their own worlds for themselves. So it's easy for people to relate to an individual flying fox. But it's very difficult to relate to flying foxes as they are in the roost, as they are outside. And bringing this back to this question, how to learn to live with flying foxes, is this one of the most important things? We need to learn with flying foxes as as they are in their worlds for themselves. I'm deeply fascinated by all of this. Um, but we might take this opportunity to have a break. So did you want to introduce the first song that you've chosen? Yes, we're going to listen to Scene by Mikaisha, who has just an incredible voice.
Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. All right, welcome back. Um, so today we're talking about bat care and the ethics of, of care for non-human animals. Um, and Davida, I was just wondering if you could tell us um, more about your data gathering process. What are some of the experiences or conversations that you had while undertaking um, the work of, of, of your thesis? I, I did a lot of interviews with scientists. I did a lot of interviews with bed carers. And uh, the main part of my of my research was to take part in volunteer activities by volunteer bed carers, such as like I took part in the activities of a of an organization called the Friends of Pets and Bush Care, with uh, incredible people who work around the clock, unpaid, to do a soft release program of flying of of orphans, flying fox pups who grow up without their mother, who are then returned over the course of several months, are then slowly released to the colony. So that's a main component of the work. Um, but And this is what interested me a lot as well. When Before the, before the break I mentioned there's relatively little attention for flying fox worlds. In that light, it's, it's interesting to look at the planting activities that, um, that these volunteers did. So they'll conduct weekly and monthly planting activities in which they try to improve the habitat of the flying foxes in Yarraband Park, which is a very dry, exposed, foresty area 
where the flying foxes need a lot of cool mid-story to retreat in during hot days. So there's a lot of planting activities for that to happen. So the, the experiences that we've had during the soft release program, well, that's, that's just, it, it is a lot of fun because you get to bring food to all of the young flying foxes in a soft release enclosure who are very curious. So you, you get to foster this, this sort of, you get to be, you get to have this sort of intimate experience of flying foxes who are usually a bit inaccessible as they are in their roost. I don't know if people, if listeners have ever been to the Yarraband Park roost, they're hanging in the trees. Um, they're, yeah. So it was, it, it did give this incredible experience of seeing flying foxes up close and seeing them respond to you, seeing them be curious. So that was, that was a, a big part of the work. But I took a real interest in, in the planting activities, precisely because it's a way in which you can care for flying foxes that actually repairs worlds. Yeah, care for flying foxes in which they are not accessible. If you look at our main relationships with flying f- with um, with animals, for example, companion animals, we all love them. <laughs> I, I have always lived with dogs. It's always been a big part of my life. But they're animals who are always accessible to us. We can always touch them. We know them intimately. We know their little be- mannerisms. We know their behaviors. But it's a very controlled situation. Whereas in the planting activities, which is one of the main experience, main findings in my thesis, in those planting activity, activities where you work in the roost, where you work where the flying foxes are sometimes roosting, sometimes not because they travel around a lot, they're not always in the same place. The thing that struck me was that you get to foster this really intimate relationship with flying foxes, but very distant like it was this sort of it was this type of relationship that for me as a western uh, as a western person was very unusual to foster relationship with animals who are not accessible to touch and see all the time but you learn to you learn to know them in a different way i think i mean from for me from reading your work it's very much on their own terms in in that sense mm. the planting activities yeah. is you're almost going into their world instead of the idea of, you know, um, bringing animals into our our cities, human cities and human life mm. worlds. Um, yeah, the planting activities are very much on those animals' terms and they can watch you and they can speak, <laughs> um, you know, um, mm. warn each other about your presence and get upset with you. Exactly. And stuff. But, yeah, I think... Even if you think about like sort of captive animal situations with animals in the zoo, there's very much kind of this accessibility that's understood in in kind of human relationships with animals is that there's always got to be very much on human terms and very much, you know, enclosures are designed to not give animals privacy and, and all that kind of situation. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about care um and care work yeah yeah um what were some of the kind of central findings of your project if you had to (laughs) kind of distill down a couple of years of work and 
hundreds of thousands of, well, not hundreds of thousands of words, but like tens of thousands of words. <laughs> oh, yes. 80,000, 80,000 words. Um, well, definitely that that interest in in those planting activities as a way to care for flying foxes as they are in their worlds for themselves. That's, that was a, that's an important part of my, of my thesis. To, yeah, to discuss my findings, to bring it back to this sort of question of learning how to live with flying foxes, where we need to learn to live with flying foxes as they are in their worlds for themselves. Um, one of the other findings was just a summary of the things that people find difficult to live with flying foxes. And this has been observed in a lot of things. Mm. People don't like the smell of flying foxes. They're too noisy. They're too, um, they make a mess in your backyard or if you live near them in their roost. Um, this is all these sort of nuisance complaints that mm -hmm. a lot of people have about flying foxes. So what do, what do people find difficult to live with flying foxes? This is one part of it. Um, and the other observation I had, one of the findings is that mm -hmm. in all of the care work that is currently conducted for flying foxes, based on the, you know, uh, by the network of advocates around the flying foxes in all of that care work there's very there's very little opportunity to practice these difficulties of learning to live with other animals part of the findings was that there's all these these everyday practicalities that we that come with living with other animals every day just very mundane things very mundane things about where do you go um, others making mess and this is stuff that we navigate every day when it comes to humans. You know, we know this in our human relationships and some people are better at it, better at handling this than others. But it's stuff like, if we think in human terms, stuff like waiting in line for others behind the register. It's stuff like um, hearing your neighbors having really loud sex at night, which happens all the time <laughs> in, in my house. It's really annoying. Good for them, really annoying. Or even... Um, even though I'm a dog lover, if a dog is barking at night, keeping me from sleep, I still get really angry. Like <laughs> I love dogs, it's still gonna still gonna piss me off. So this is this is the sort of stuff that the everyday, very mundane stuff that we need to navigate in living with others, including other animals. But this is the stuff that has always been resisted when it comes to living with other animals, and that's that's part of the cultural analysis in my thesis that I do in Western in Western countries. So this is this is characteristic of a Western culture that always tries to eliminate or minimize the impact that other animals have on our lives. You can see that in all of the history and present of settler colonial Australia. It is, for example, this dispersal campaign. It's this extensive, expansive campaign to eliminate or minimize the impact that other animals have on our lives. So our whole society is structured to not make us have to deal with these everyday practicalities of learning to live with other animals. Yeah, the, I guess my next question is what kind of theorizing around care did you engage with in analyzing your findings? And in particular, I was really struck by um, you know, your engagement with feminist ethics of care. Um, and I think 
it was um, Joan Tronto's work on the ideas of an ethic of care that's attentive, responsible, competent and responsive. I, I, mm. Yeah, I really thought that that was fascinating work. So I'd love to hear you share, share that with more people. <laughs> <laughs> an ethic of care, yeah. What sort of really changed my thinking, what really helped my thinking in thinking about care and when we think about care for animals is the literature such as authors in the feminist ethics of care tradition who talk about care as skillful. If you can care, there are certain skills to care. Skills of attentiveness, skills of taking responsibility, skills of responsiveness. And that is so helpful, this skillful approach, because skills can be practiced, skills can be nurtured, skills we, skills we learn, skills we develop in a community. We look to others, we turn to others for skills. Um, and this is the type of skills that we need when we have to deal with those everyday practicalities that I've, that I've just mentioned. So to deal with those everyday practicalities, we need caring skills. So this idea of care as skillful really helped my thinking. Because um, then, th then you can think about in what way are we already trained in those skills? In what way do we have the opportunities to develop these skills with, with other animals in mind, but also with other people in mind? Well, very little, <laughs> I can tell you. This is the type of thing, this is the type of... And this is not something new, this is something that feminists, um, feminist ethics of care have already said. This is the type of work, care work, that is not valued in Western societies. Yeah. So that is one part of the whole theoretical approach that I took to, to care as skillful. Um, that is the feminist ethics of care. But the other aspect is indigenous ethics of care. Because this feminist and indigenous ethics of care have a, have a big similarity. Authors have said that they're both anti-colonial ethics. And both really show caring is skillful. Caring is cultural, like we, we do this in a culture, this is embodied, we learn this from others. And care is structural. We do this in communities. We do this in a society that is centered around care, which is completely at odds with how Western anthropocentric, settler colonial, patriarchal, capitalist, name it all, <laughs> um, how those societies are structured. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really um, insightful parts for me was thinking through care as a relationship as well, and that it's not a unidirectional practice, it's actually a, a form of, of relations, um, which, yeah, as you've just said, is a totally different way of thinking mm. about, um, yeah, the practice of care in a Western patriarchal settler colonial capitalist society. Yeah. Um, we might jump to the second song um, and then come back. And, and I'm, I'm worried we're going to run out of time to get through everything. So maybe we'll have to be <laughs> back again <laughs> to keep talking about your work. But let's see how we go. But yeah, let's tuck over to your second song now. So what's your, your second <laughs> Uh, we're going to listen to Ziggy Ramo, who is just an incredible performer. So you'll, you'll hear Stressed Out. Stressed out. 
stressed out, I lost it. Back down, back down, what it cost it. Work hard, work hard, no profit. I swear I got holes in my pockets. Stressed out, stressed out, I got this. Back down, back down, not an option. Work hard, work hard, no profit. I swear I got dreams in my pockets. Motivation is fading, but I'm still chasing. Aware that I'm aging, I feel my body changing. I wanna take another thing from my parents. I don't wanna post on Instagram for appearance. I just wanna tell you real life shit. I've been chasing this thing since a little old kid. Since 16, I had a dream, and I ain't giving up. 24 ain't got no more, my goals aren't living up. So, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I've given everything, and my dreams still ain't come true. But I'm stubborn, I'm not budging. My mother calls, and I got discussions. I tell her that I'm so close, and my dreams are coming. But lately, I don't know for sure. Cause I swear I've been so close so many times before. Should I grow up and face reality? I might never be everything I wanna be. Stressed out, stressed out, I lost it. Back down, back down, what it cost it. Work hard, work hard, no profit. I swear I got holes in my pockets. Stressed out, stressed out, I got this. Back down, back down, not an option. Work hard, work hard, no profit. I swear I got dreams in my pockets. Dedication can be isolating. I make music that your party to and I ain't never getting faded See my dream was to bring us together But the further I get I feel more alone than ever Bridges burnt, lessons learned, now I work alone I take my turn, I take my earnings, I don't leave my home My lady got me but I honestly don't have no friends I won't pretend nobody checking in if you don't ever bend on a vision That never might kick in, you never might get it That leaves you unsettled, living in limbo Should I let it go, are these sacrifices worth it? I really don't know, I really hope so I really work for, but nothing's ever promised I'm no more important than anybody I'm just a nobody, is it worth it to be a somebody? Yeah. Stressed out, stressed out, I lost it Back down, back down, what it cost it Work hard, work hard, no profit I swear I got holes in my pockets Stressed out, stressed out, I got this Back down, back down, not an option Work hard, work hard, no profit I swear I got dreams in my pockets In my pockets In my pockets Yeah, yeah I swear I got dreams in my pockets There's no stopping There's no stopping Yeah, yeah Chasing dreams and there ain't no stopping Stressed out, stressed out, I lost it Back down, back down, what it cost it Work hard, work hard, no profit I swear I got holes in my pockets Stressed out, stressed out, I got this Back down, back down, not an option Work hard, work hard, no profit I swear I got dreams in my pockets When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org.
Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. So welcome back. Um, we're here with Freedom Species on 3CR talking to Deveda. Um, the next question I have is, yeah, something that really, really interests me in terms of what do you think um, these approaches to care, so feminist um, understanding of care, Indigenous understandings of care can offer um, vegan philosophies and activism? I, I've, I see a few things that sort of in which my thesis relates to, to vegan activism in Australia. One is a very practical thing. I've noticed a few patterns in how people try to garner support for the flying foxes. They'll say things like they try to make people care about flying foxes on the basis of their exceptionality. Like they are incredible long-range pollinators. They have all these exceptional features or... Or they gar- try to garner support for flying foxes on the basis of their complex sociality. It got me thinking about, you know, on what basis do we advocate for other animals? And I felt like these ideas sort of instilled the idea that care should only be directed to those who are exceptional. Whereas people can be a complete slob, which is me, on most of the weekends. And still be, <laughs> so, you know, subjects of care or... Fo- and still receive, still deserve care. So it's difficult to to live in a society where care is so conditional. It's very conditional on your productivity. Whereas ideally we live in a society where care is just mundane. It's just 
this is what we do. It's embodied. This is what we this is how we do things here, you know, like using chopsticks for food or using knives and forks. This is just what we do. I think the point that you make in the thesis as well about, yeah, about the ways in which people attempt to mobilise care for um, the bats, you know, one of, one of the things you raise is the fact that there's a lot of discourse around how useful the animals are these specific animals and I think you know you've touched on this in terms of exceptionality etc but yeah there's kind of this assumption that if an another species is not useful to humans in some ways then that again that they're not deserving of care um so you know the pollination and the pro it's all linked to these kind of concepts of of productivity um yeah and I think that Mm. It's easy to see really Western and capitalist ways of thinking replicated um, in our social movements in terms of how we appeal to people's, you know, empathy or sympathy, whatever. Um, Yeah, I think it does raise questions about what is your theory of change um, Mm. and how do you best think that change can be achieved um, there's a really incredible um, Indigenous scholar named Eve Tuck who's written a really amazing, it's quite mm. old now, but a letter called Suspending Damage. And it's a, the idea that, um, you know, Indigenous researchers should stop recording stories of Indigenous, s- s- stories that are only about Indigenous um, disadvantage and damage um, and, mm. you know, the the bad impacts of colonialism because yeah there's this kind of theory that in order to appeal for help from the settler state you have to present yourself as you know Mm. demoralized and and yeah almost irreparably damaged yeah to mobilize that care and I I think we say that a lot with animals yeah the way that Mm. you know and disabled people you know any body who's not the yeah. kind of ideal Western capitalist settler subject um, yeah. Yeah, and the kind of language that we use to mobilise care in those situations can be re- actually incredibly disempowering and just per- constantly yeah. perpetuating these really problematic ways of thinking. Yeah, exactly. And that that's just the, the conditionality of care. The Yeah. I, w- I wanted to share... Like what sort of really was eye-opening for me. And for example, I described this way of garnering support for the flying foxes on the basis of their exceptionality, of their intelligence, so complex sociality, ways in which they resemble us humans. That's sort of how you can tell it, you know. Um, but what was really striking for me, I had um, had a interview with an elder from the Rundry community and he explained the system of totemic responsibility to me. So the intimate and responsible relationships that Rundry children develop with animals they have a specific interest in. And from the way he described it, and I'm, I'm really careful, I don't want to talk as if I know. One thing I noticed is that this re- their relationship with other animals that he described was based on, was a very embodied way. Like we have bodies that we like to use in similar ways, which was just so generous to me like this is we have bodies children are 
encouraged to learn more about the animals that they take an interest in based on the activities that they like to do, like swimming or climbing trees. Which animals do those things that you like to do? Digging in the dirt. You have, we have bodies that we like to use in similar ways. I think that's just such a generous, grounded way of, of relating to other animals that is so different and where care is directed to, they're so different from care is directed to others only if they meet certain conditions. Another thing that, so I come to this research as a vegan, as a settler on colonized land. And the thing that made me think in how my thesis relates to vegan advocacy in Australia is it made me realize there's so much more to our relationships with other animals than just being vegan. And that has all to do with that we as settlers have a responsibility to repair worlds. For example, the flying foxes are threatened with extinction. They're not threatened with extinction because they somehow are found themselves in this weather pattern that, oh, well, we walked into this weather pattern and suddenly we're, we're threatened with extinction. No, no. It's settler colonialism. And it, they're not unique in that it's it's ongoing settler colonialism and habitat destruction and we as settlers have a responsibility to repair worlds that requires that a lot of us that just being vegan isn't enough to repair worlds we need to undo a lot of the things that we for example i, I feel very ambivalent about i'm a foster carer i care for foster dogs i love it but i feel very ambivalent about it as well because because I'm not repairing worlds. I make, there's changes involved in the lives of the dogs who otherwise would have been euthanized in the pound. It's awful, I hate it. Um, the work is still important. I think it's important that we do this work, but it's not gonna be enough. It's not gonna be enough to repair worlds. And the same with the, and that's similar to what I've observed with the flying foxes, you know, it's not enough to just treat and release them once they've found them, once they've been entangled in netting or barbed wire we need to undo the structures that lead to this we need to repair worlds and those planting activities that i mentioned that's one way that's just a small aspect of what it means to repair worlds um, but yeah it's it's just this idea that veganism is being vegan is not enough and i've noted a trend among vegan people where they try to where vegan is considered to be this this all-encompassing ideology that is gonna it's gonna change a lot of things, but it's not it's not perfect. It's not the one thing that's gonna change everything. Yeah, I think that's so important in a settler colonial context like Australia. Like I think often people don't think through the kind of activist activities that they do and the kind of implications that this can have. Like, you know, the kind of focus is on for the animals whatever um mm. you know whatever the the slogan is at the time but you know particularly when you're thinking about um you know indigenous life worlds and indigenous cultures and histories and relationships to country and to animals that um yeah that that's not something that most settler australians ever have in their minds um, and so I think that you can get horrific situations where people are replicating like incredibly damaging um, and, and problematic kind of relationships with Indigenous communities in the name of, you know, animal activism or whatever. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, the 
you know, one thing I, I've I've realized, like sanctuaries, like I've loved I've loved being on vegan sanctuaries. Um, it's been incredible. But from the outside, if you drive past them, they don't look different from farmland. They don't look different from the conquest that has ravaged this country. Yeah. And that's one of the material. That's one of the very materially that's one of the infrastructures that we need to engage with as well that we need to address and repair planting more native vegetation planting more vegetation um, is as simple as that if you have the chance anyway so this is it's one of the ways in which i've come across sort of the limits of veganism and it sort of also speaks to this i've noted how vegan people have tried to pull other people into veganism for example by saying you're not a real feminist if you aren't vegan and that's sort of the thinking where I'm like, this is misguided and also completely disrespectful to our feminist elders. <laughs> Don't disrespect your feminist elders like that, um, who put their bodies on the line to, to get us where we are now. Uh, pretty fucking feminist to me. But anyway, it's just this, yeah, I really come across the, the expansiveness, the, the world that we can enjoy beyond veganism. It's still an important part of me. I absolutely enjoy and love being a vegan but there's more there's more to our relationship with other animals and um and that's i just want to quickly reference something that a friend and a vegan animal advocate on this show has said as well and she has said something that has always stuck with me which is there's nothing more beautiful as a white settler than learning not to be damaging in a place which for me sort of encapsulate this whole reorientation caring practice that we need to develop and there's lots that you can do you can join communities of care with the specific intent of caring in a community depending on your means and resources you can if you're a landowner for example you can see if you can work with trust for nature to protect vegetation on your property forever you can join me and the Friends of Bats and Bush Care every Wednesday or once a month on Sunday with the planting activities that we do, which is a really good way to sort of get to know the place. And also just in your everyday life, wherever you are, not even when you, not when you have a property, just when you're at home, in your rental or wherever you live, just pay attention to who is living? Who is visiting this place? What do they need? And how can you meet those needs? Unfortunately, we're out of time and I've got a, other questions that I wanted to ask you, but as I said, we're just going to have to invite you back. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a really fascinating and thought-provoking conversation. Well, thanks, Claire. It's been so wonderful speaking to you about this outside of the comment section in the Word document that you've been reading. Um, thanks for having me. And we'll share links on the show website for the other episodes of the show about bats if people want to specifically jump to those episodes and also um, the links to the various bat care organisations um, that you've had, in, that you've mentioned and that you had um, involvement with over the, the process of, of your thesis because I think it would be really great to see some of our listeners getting involved with some of the work that you've talked about today. 
Um, thanks also to the listeners. So if you have any feedback on the show, please feel free to email us at freedomofspecies at gmail.com. Um, and we air every Sunday from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, so tune in on 8.55 a.m. in Melbourne. Um, and obviously we also stream live via the 3CR website and our previous episodes are available as podcasts um, through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So we're going to go out with your last song, um, which I'm going to throw over to, to mm. introduce. So what, what's the last song you wanted to us <laughs> today? Um, let's finish with this very energizing, amazing performance, Electric Fields, who always make my heart sing, Don't You Worry. Great. Thank you. Something inside saying don't you worry, it's all in good time, no need to hurry.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.